We're going to continue with our series on Christmas, um, entitled Preparing for Christ. And um, I love this time of the year <clears throat> for a lot of reasons. One, I love to preach a Christmas series. Two, I love the fact that songs of worship are played in secular places and people just sing along. I love that. And I love that we get to rehearse and sing afresh songs that have traditionally been kind of relegated to a Christmas carol kind of mindset rather than a song of worship. And if you, if you relook at Hark the Herald Angels, which we sang today, that's some of the most fabulous penned theology in rhyme you will ever get in a song. It is amazing. And that, no bridge. There's no bridge in that thing. Just three verses. And there is so much great theology in there. I just worship every time I, I sing it. I thought, somebody was inspired by the Holy Ghost on this thing. So, for that and many other reasons, I love Christmas. Turn with me over to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. <clears throat> the title of this message is... Do you want to see him? The series is Preparing for Christ, and the title of this message is Do You Want to See Him? Luke chapter 2, verse 22. We're going to read a large portion of Scripture, 22 through verse 38. Of Mary and Joseph, it says, And when the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons 25 and there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon and this man was righteous and devout looking for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ 27. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, O Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. 33. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to his mother Mary, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Verse 36, And there was a prophetess, Anna, daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher, and she was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after their marriage and then was a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. And at that very moment, verse 38, she came up and began giving thanks to God and, and, and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Father in heaven, help us as we study today. Here we've got a beautiful story of Mary and Joseph doing what they should do according to the law. Leviticus 12 had said that it was important for every mother and father to bring their child before 
God. And to present an offering of thanksgiving for God giving them the baby. And to renew their commitment to him. All of this was kind of assumed in, in their presentation of the baby. Renew their commitment to him. Thank him for what he had given them. And at the same time, rededicate or give the child back to God that God had given to them. It was a moment of worship. And it was analogous to our dedication moments. And Mary and Joseph were doing all they could to be right. At, the, at 33 days, every male child was to be brought before the Lord. And at 66 days, every female child. And so at 33 days, Mary and Joseph were doing what they should. But you have to remember that there was one designated spot for this to be done. Now, I, I imagine that there were priests all over Israel. And so maybe it could be done in the privacy of a home someplace in Nazareth. Maybe it could have been done in Bethlehem where they presently resided. Uh, you were supposed to offer all your sacrifices there at the temple, but there was some precedent in the Old Testament for offering sacrifices at other spots. And so it's possible that you could have found a priest someplace. There were thousands of them in the lineage of, of Aaron and Moses and the tribe of Levi. Thousands of them around the nation. You could have found somebody to just do a private ceremony. But to do it in the temple, oh, that was an Instagram moment there. Now, in my generation, we say a Kodak moment. But Kodak is gone. So is Polaroid, for that matter. We don't know where they went, but they no longer exist. They were camera companies. And you, you, you wanted to be able to, to tell your baby you were dedicated in the house, the place where God has assigned his name, where he has relegated his glory to abide, that's where you were dedicated, boy. You wanted to be able to have that kind of history behind the dedication moment. So it was kind of discouraged to, to do it anyplace else because the temple was a spot. But you have to understand the temple was a very small place. It was smaller than this building. It wasn't large, at least a place for worship. And you had everybody trying to make sure they had that Instagram moment. So the millions of people that were in Israel, there could have been 5,000 babies born at that specific time, the time when Jesus was born, and then 33 days later to be dedicated on that day. And let's say that a tenth of them decided they wanted to obey because not everybody obeyed. Should have, but they didn't. Could have been 500 babies all coming at that one time. And so I imagine it was much like, okay, you take a number and you go find a priest. And the priest calls your name. Next. And they do the dedication moment. And they sacrifice whatever, the animals, the turtle doves, the pigeons, the lambs, depending upon how, many, how much resource you had. And then you're out. You move them in, do your religious thing, move them out, get the next one in. And Mary and Joseph were in the queue. And as they're waiting for their time, all of a sudden this dude Simeon just comes up. Now, what we don't know about Simeon is pretty huge. What we do know is great, but what we don't know might even say more about who he is. Because there's nothing in his lineage, nothing in the description that talks about him being a priest. We do have God giving the lineage of Anna, telling us her dad and the lion of her family from the tribe of Asher. We have no clue where Simeon came from. And if he was a priest, 
we would have assumed that the writer would have said so. So we're not talking about a pastor here, though we would ascribe what he did as pastor-like. What we're talking about is a really good church member. Talking about you, pedestrian in your title, yet consecrated in your calling. Average, layman, person that just comes in on a Sunday morning and says, God, speak to me today. Nobody recognizes them with any degree of, 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 of importance with respect to doing something on a Sunday morning. They just happen to be a holy man, holy woman of God. And then you've got Anna. Anna's, I think, the version of a Hebrew nun. She's lived in the temple for a long period of time. You have to understand how things worked in Israel. Older men would marry younger women because they just kind of worked out that way. It wasn't planned that way. Older men married late because they had to develop the amount of resources necessary to, to give a bride price to the father of their prospective intendee, their fiancé. So the, the man was required to pay the father a lump sum of money for the right to marry his daughter. A dowry is when he goes the other way around, but that dowries were done in Europe. Israel did bride prices. Dowries were when the father of the bride paid the groom's father something. But when you, when you talk about the amount of money that it would take to secure a, a woman of fine standing, oh, it wasn't cheap. Wasn't cheap. Jacob? Jacob was the brother of Esau. The two sons of Isaac, of the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that group. Jacob had to run from his brother because his brother had the birthright, and Jacob kind of stole it along with the blessing, deceived him out of it. It was a mess. And so Esau was now mad at him, trying to kill Jacob. And so Jacob's mama, mother of both the boys, told Jacob, you need to go because your brother only has happy thoughts when he's thinking about killing you. <laughs> Literally. He takes comfort with the thought of killing you. That's what it says. So you got to go. So Jacob ran up to his mother's brother, Laban. So Rebekah's brother, Laban, about 120 miles north. And he stayed there. Well, Laban had a daughter named Rachel. And Rachel was top 10 model gorgeous. She was, she was amazing. Jacob looks at Laban, looks at Rachel, says to Laban, I want her to be my wife. Laban says, what you got? Now, he had just run under the cover of darkness away from home. He's got nothing. He says, well, I'll give you seven years of labor for her. Hmm. What's your annual salary? Uh-huh. Now multiply that by seven. That's what it costs for Jacob to secure Rachel. If you are a blue-collar worker making between 40 and 60, you're talking about times seven, somewhere in the neighborhood of three to $400,000 to secure the right to marry Rachel. That's why it took a man a little bit longer than a couple of years out of college <laughs> to get the kind of money to marry the woman he wanted. So you had older men marrying women 
who were in their prime childbearing years so that they could bear as many children as possible. So it was not uncommon for an older man of, say, 40 or 45 to marry a 16-year-old. Now, you may be aghast at that, but that was reality because of the system that was set up of the bride price, which meant for Anna that she may have married a 40-year-old, 45. The average lifespan of a man back then was about 55. If you lived 55 years, you were old. You were ripe in years. So, let's say Anna was 16. Her husband was 42. He lived to 49. Married to her, dies. She's 23. That's why it magnifies the moment that she lived without a man as a widow until the age of 84 probably six decades and that's why we think she was kind of like a Hebrew nun lived in the house fastings and prayers and she was a prophetess now the interesting thing about this is that both of these two people that recognized the Christ child recognized him not because he, he somehow as the son of God glowed in the dark as a baby it was nothing. Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, nothing about his natural form that would attract anybody to him. He was just a baby, a normal baby, supernatural, but normal in appearance. If he were to walk by on the street, you would not know him if your eyes were not open to see him. You wouldn't recognize him as being anything other than a man. So what was it about Simeon and Anna that recognized this Christ child. And remember, where were they? In church. Everybody who was in church missed it, except two people when God showed up. Folk coming to church to meet God. He showed up. They didn't notice it. They were too busy doing the religious thing. Too busy doing the right thing. And the whole purpose of coming to church is to be God. And he showed up and only two folks saw it. It's possible to clock in and clock out and miss him. You got to have your eyes open. And maybe these two people allow us the privilege of understanding the kind of way we need to be. The kind of life we need to live if we want to see him. You want to see him. Do you want to see him in this holiday season? Let's take our cues from Simeon and Anna. Number one, it says Simeon was, was righteous. Righteous. Now, in the New Testament, I'll say it this way. The New Covenant has a different definition of righteous than the Old Covenant. But the, the, the transitionary books between Old, Old Covenant and New Covenant are the Gospels. The Gospels, are they, uh, even though they are in the New Testament, most of the, the narrative is about Old Testament reality. Old Covenant reality. Because Jesus had not yet died. The last couple of chapters of every book then move us into the New Covenant. But to that point, everything is still Old Covenant. Because Jesus hadn't died yet. The whole New Covenant is established upon Jesus' death. And so you have different definitions of, of what righteousness is in the Old Testament as opposed to the New. Because in the New Testament, righteousness has very little to do with your actions. 
It has everything to do with what God has done, not what you have done. Because what you have done is proven that you aren't right. You have committed too many acts against God. You've broken his laws. You have, you have verified the fact that you are a practiced criminal. Experienced in your craft. You know how to get around the laws of God and break them regularly along with me. We have proven that we are wrong and there is not enough we can do right to fix that. You cannot do enough right and good to fix all the bad you have done. It will not wipe it away. Those deeds still stand before God with him pounding the gavel on the bench of justice saying you are guilty. And they cry against you regularly. You cannot wipe them away by trying to do good. The only way we can be right is if we accept what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. In that he said, I am taking the sin of mankind upon me and its punishment. We then, as as a result of accepting what Jesus has done, allow ourselves to be then washed under his blood and allow his death to be our death. He takes our death because the wages of sin was death. And therefore, we should die as a result of our sin. And there's no good we can do to fix that that judgment. He takes our death, and he was not worthy of dying because he had done nothing worthy to die for. Since the wages of sin is death, and Jesus had done done nothing worthy of dying, then that meant he could take your and my death. Are you following me? If he had done something wrong, then he would be dying for himself. Because he had done something worthy of death. He then takes our death. He takes our punishment. And his blood being spilled allows us the privilege of being forgiven. But forgiven doesn't mean righteous. Forgiven means innocent. Righteous is something different. The fact that he rose from the dead after he died because he had done nothing worthy of death, therefore death could not hold him when he did die, proves that he lived right. He was the only one who lived all right. If he had done one thing wrong, he would still be in the grave. But since he had done nothing wrong, death could not hold him. Therefore, he rose, proving him to be right and the only one who was right. And if we identify with him in his death, then certainly we get to identify with him in his resurrection, which allows us the privilege. Now, that's not Brett's coined phrase. That's Bible. That's that's Romans chapter 6. That means that when we identify with him in his death, we get to identify with him in his resurrection so that if he's right then we're right, not because we have done right, but because he has enveloped us in his righteousness. This is the only way that we can be seen as being right before God is being enveloped in who Christ is. That's it. Therefore, we are called righteous, even though you are not experientially all right. Okay, that's 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 new covenant reality of how we get righteous. Old Testament was this. It was a relative righteousness. A righteousness that said, they aren't the worst. And they're really trying hard. And they're doing as right as they possibly can. And so they are trying to obey the law law as best as they know how. And when they blow it, then they make the necessary sacrifice in order to reestablish their right standing before God. Secondly, they're doing everything they possibly can to try to be right with people. If they see the naked, they're clothing them. If they see the hungry, they're feeding them. They're not stepping out on their spouse. They're making sure they're dealing with their finances properly and not charging their brother interest. When it says righteous, that's what it means in the Old Testament. Right before God as best as possible and right with man. 
Simeon was righteous. Now, if you have been declared righteous and that you've identified with the cross and allowed the resurrection to be now your your secondary identification, that you've died with him and now you get the privilege of living with him, if you have identified with all of that, then you are declared righteous. And since you are declared righteous, you then must act like it. And this is where it gets sticky because some people who have been made right aren't. Oh, I'm not saying you you aren't positionally right. It's just that when everybody sees you, they can't tell that you're a Christian even though it comes out of your mouth. You say you're right. And they say, well, why are you out at the club with me? They don't say it, but they think it. Why do you say this? Why do you do that? You say you're right, but you ain't right. Something's wrong with you. Indeed. Though you might have your ticket punched to glory, it doesn't matter much here. And because you don't live like what you've been purchased to live like, you don't see them. The only time you will have the privilege of seeing them is when you get to glory. I want to see them here. I want to see what Simeon saw. Other people just see humanity. I see God in humanity. I see him working in people's lives. I see him inserted in poverty-stricken places. I see him helping in desperate marriages that can't get right. I see him. But in order to see him, you got to live right. If you're living wrong, he's not going to reveal himself to you like that. You're not a steward of what you see. Simeon was a righteous man. You start living right, it's hard to miss him. He was devout also. Devout means... In the original language there, cautious, cautious. So Simeon was was the kind of guy who wasn't reckless in his Christianity. He didn't just do what he wanted to do and then try try to cover up all his misdeeds with a please forgive me. I'll go to church. I'll give an offering. He was cautious. Lord, I... Should I marry this person? I really want your will. I don't want my need to lead. I want you to lead me. I don't want my insecurity down on the inside to really begin to prompt me to do something that's not born of you. So I'm asking you, Lord, I'm cautious in my decision-making here. Lead me in this. I'm cautious in the words that come out of my mouth. I, I just don't want to blurt out something that might hurt somebody. Lord, put a guard on my lips. Don't let me say something. I want to be cautious in what I say. I want to be cautious in guarding my heart for out of it flow the issues of life, Proverbs 4. Cautious. He was righteous in his actions and his heart was bent toward making sure that everything on the inside of him was right. Trying to do right. Trying to be right. Trying to think right. Trying to say right. Trying to feel right. You live like that, it's hard not to see Jesus. Hard to miss him. Thirdly, it says that he was looking for the consolation of Israel. What what, what are you looking for? A new job? Health? A husband? A wife? More money? What are you looking for? What dominates your eyesight? It says that Simeon, the, the thing upon which he was focused... Is Lord, how can my people be helped? 
what does your prayer life sound like? Now, what I'm about to say might sound a little bit over-emphatic, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't concentrate on the things that are really important to your life. But please, let's not sanctify our selfishness. Thinking that, well, God's there to help meet my needs, and the thing, I, the thing upon which I need to concentrate most is my own personal life. So I'm going to pray about my health and my money and my career. And, and I, listen, I am glad you pray. Better, better to pray about you than not at all. <laughs> at least you're in his presence talking to him. That's good. But that's not the goal. Let's not sanctify our selfishness. Christianity is never about you. This man, in priority, was saying he was looking for how can my people be helped? How, how often is it that you pray for this church? How often is it that you pray for your small group? How often is it that you pray for the leadership? I'm not looking for me, the staff. How often is it that you pray for the men's ministry, the women's ministry? How, does that ever make it to your prayer list? Are you looking for the consolation of the people of Israel? How often is it that you pray for the community? Do those ever make it to the list or is your entire life dominated by your needs? When your life is dominated by your needs, it's hard to see Jesus anyplace else. It's hard. And it says he came, it says he was, he had the spirit upon him. The spirit of God was on him. Most of the time in the Old Testament, when the spirit of God came on somebody, it was to do something extraordinary. Spirit of God came upon Joshua, do something extraordinary. The Spirit of God came upon Samson to, to knock out the Philistines. The Spirit of God came upon a man named Jephthah in Judges chapter 11, and he vanquished the Ammonites. It was, it was always for an extraordinary act of valor or to prophesy. The Spirit of God came upon Elijah, and he outran Jezebel and, and Ahab's chariots to a spot about 30 miles away. I don't know how that happened. But it, God came on them, just amazing speed. But there was nothing here for Simeon to do. So it's, it's kind of like, it's kind of like God just said, I really like you, Simeon. I think I'm going to hang around with you. That it was a daily occurrence that the Spirit of God was on him. You remember when Jesus got baptized at the Jordan? John the Baptist baptized him and says the heavens opened. And all of a sudden this dove came out of heaven and landed upon him. And it remained, it says. It remained. Now, as you know, birds do not think that people are the preferable places upon which to land. Usually inanimate objects are the places where birds land. Anybody ever had a bird just come and land on your head? Doesn't happen very often. If it did, what you would do is something like this. <gasps> and he'd fly away. The Spirit of God was so in sync with Jesus that not only could he land, but they moved together. We're so herky-jerky. We're in the spirit one moment, out of the spirit the next. He can't remain. Even when he does land on us, he can't remain. Because once he lands, then we start moving in ways that aren't in concert with him. <laughs> That's what it's like in the spirit. We just get spastic. And the bird just... Whoo -whoo -whoo -whoo. And as much as he wants to land and stay, we just, we just keep twitching, moving in the wrong way, 
moving out of sync with the Spirit, and he can't remain. On Simeon, it seems like it just was his home, and the Spirit of God was on him. When the Spirit of God is on you and he remains, it's hard not to see Jesus. It's real hard. And he came into the temple in the Spirit. (laughs) How do you come into church? You who are married with three kids under the age of five, how do you come into church? That's what I want to know. What does it feel like? I remember. I remember. And I had to preach. Are you kidding me? (laughs) I was rarely in the spirit when I came into church. We only had one car. And so, you know, timeliness was an issue. I'm not going to describe who was at fault. But timeliness was an issue. And children were throwing up, and they had different shoes on each foot, and the left shoe was on the right foot, and the right shoe was on the left foot, and it was a mess. This was my life when you got a bunch of little people. It's hard to come into church right. Hard. But you have to make sure that you do not let the distractions of life steal what God wants to do in you when you come in here. So when you come into the Spirit... When you come into the temple in the spirit, all of a sudden you're able to see things. Now remember, what I just described is what, what, what it's like to come to church. Hear me, that happens every week for you. It's the unusual thing when you're on time and things don't go wrong. So since it happens every week, get used to it. I'm not saying be happy with it. Get used to it and don't let it steal the joy that you need when you come in. For, you want to come in the spirit regardless of what's going on in your life. You see stuff. And then we got Anna prophetess, which meant in order to be a prophetess, you have to have your ear turned to hear. And when you're trying to hear what God has to say, it's hard to miss them. And remember, a prophetess or a prophet is not trying to hear for themselves. They have a ministry for everybody else. What did Paul say about the gifts of the Spirit in in 1 Corinthians 12? God distributes these gifts as he wills for who? The common good. The gift that you have is not for you. The gift that you have is for everybody else. You're gifted so that other people can be encouraged with your gift as God moves through you. It's not just to make you happy so you can print up a business card and say profit on it. which meant she had concern for other people. As she was having her ear toward heaven, her mouth was speaking of of the goodness of God to others. And when you have a desire to share with others that which God has given you, why wouldn't he want to reveal himself in more ways? Because that gives you more stuff to share. You're concerned about people so much You want their benefit. You want them to be helped and blessed. You're constantly thinking about what God wants. When you do that, God says, here, I'm going to show you more and more about me so that you have more and more to share. And what did this woman do as soon as she heard? She went around the whole temple trying to find anybody who would listen to her. Let me tell you what I saw this little old lady walk around. That's the Christ child over there. I don't know what it sounded like, but you know what I'm talking about. A little old woman talking about, go see the baby. It's the Christ of Messiah. right over there. Oh, it's so neat. <laughs> Remember, only two people saw. Only two. And then lastly, 
Simeon said, Oh, your servant can now depart in peace, for my eyes have seen the salvation of Israel. There's something about God appearing in your circumstances. God showing up in your world that allows you to transition to the next phase of your life. Nothing had changed for Israel. Circumstantially, they were still under the foot of Rome. And Rome was an oppressive government. Nothing had changed. But Simeon said, I see the answer. I know what God is doing now. And I can transition to something else. Now for him, it was to go on. For you, when you see God inserted in your marriage, inserted in your employment, inserted in your friendships, those situations that seem to be a little untoward and a little sticky and murky and just thorny, when you see God inserted there, generally speaking, you can move on to the next thing because he's got that. You don't need to continue to be concerned, anxious, worry about those issues, even though they may not have resolved themselves yet. You see him in it. And if he's in it, he's going to fix it. Now, I know you come into church sometimes and you're saying, whew, I hope they sing my favorite song today. Whew, come on, Tiffany, sing, sing, sing. And I really want Pastor Brett to, I need a word today. I need a word. I need a word. I hope he just, Lord, just like let him say, speak about my, yeah, I need him. And we don't sing your favorite song. And I don't say anything about your situation. And you think, Lord, did you meet me? Did you, what was that? I didn't hear anything about my present day. I need something. Maybe he's got that. You just haven't seen him in it yet. You just haven't seen him. And so he's now asking you, move on. Let's go to the next thing. Let's advance the cause of God. Let's go to the next thing. There are other mountains we got to tackle here. Other things we have to overcome. Don't, don't dwell on that. I got that. You just need to open your eyes. This holiday season, may you see Jesus like you've never seen him. Never. Remember, he's infinite. Infinite. That means that there is no end to the revelation of who he is. I don't even understand that. Eternity and and infiniteness are two concepts that are bigger than my brain but I just know they keep going and and God is eternal in his life no beginning no end he's the only one in the universe who is eternal we get eternal life but we had a beginning and are supposed to have no end that's immortality but we are never eternal because we had a beginning God has no beginning and no end I don't know what that means because all of our life is centered around some, starting something and seeing something in. Hey, he had neither. And infiniteness, nothing can contain him and his being is without end. Which, which even though it blows my mind, it makes me kind of happy. Because I realize that when I get into eternity, I, I'll never have a boring moment of seeing who he is. Church will just go on and it will be one did you see that? Oh, my goodness, that was amazing. And after we have just been blown away with that insight, oh, my goodness, 
too. Every moment of every day. Him showing us something about who he is that makes us go, wow. Start now. Don't wait. Let him reveal himself to you in amazing ways now. And don't be like the other 3,000 people who came into the temple that day and missed when God showed up. Let's pray.